Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's been a while, but I'm so excited to finally be back with new episodes of My Rock Moment. Season 3 will be focused on the California rock scene of the 60s and 70s. From LA to San Francisco, some of rock's best and brightest thrived during those decades. And I'll be having some interesting conversations about those awesome years with my guests. These are the folks that lived it, write about it, and photographed it. So to kick off the season, today we're going to be talking to the iconic photographer Neil Preston. Neil's photos are known around the world. He has toured with and photographed every face you can think of in rock. He experienced the rock scene in LA firsthand in the 70s, and man, has he got stories. You're going to want to listen to this one till the very end, so let's get started. Neil, thank you for coming on My Rock Moment. My pleasure. <laughs> All right. Check well, with for, me in an hour and a half. Right. <laughs> By the time we're done with this, you might yeah. have a different story. No, no, no. It's going to be amazing. Oh, I won't have a different story. <laughs> but just, you know, I'm, I'm good to go here. I'm good to go. I guarantee I won't either. But for anyone listening that's a rock lover um, or a photography lover or both, they've heard of you. Um, You've had a prolific career, to say the least, and you were the official tour photographer for Led Zeppelin, Bruce Springsteen, Queen. And you were also the official American photographer, right, for Live Aid at Wembley. For Live Aid in Great Britain, yeah. Yeah. uh, June, was it June 13th, 1985, I think. Yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. (laughs) Yeah, and I I normally don't remember dates like that unless I write them down a lot, but I think I read it recently. So, yeah, it's it's, it's 20, 35 years ago. Jeez, Ah, 36 years ago. And you've done so much since then, too. And then then not to mention your work in the sports world and, you know, the Olympic Games and all of that. I mean, you've been all over the place. Yeah, well, I had a time life contract for many years. What that entailed was a guarantee for X amount of shoot days per year. For instance, if they, if I signed a contract guaranteeing me 40 shoot days per year and they only hired me for 36, they'd have to pay me the extra four day rates. So it wasn't like a big money deal. But it was, it was, it was more a thing where they didn't want me working for the competition. It would be 40 or 45 days a year, 50 days a year. I think we got up to 75 days one year, oh my God. which is a lot of shoot days. 
you know, magazine work is tough. And I was shooting primarily for People magazine, Time magazine, a little for Sports Illustrated, uh, you know, all the Time Inc. publications at the time. Every one of those has a, has a couple of deadlines involved, a shoot deadline, a deadline to get the film into New York, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And there's a, part of my expression, fuck a lot of traveling involved, too. <laughs> and that, and, and, you know, the traveling will, that's what will get you. Yeah. The traveling will will just make you stop and say, what am I doing? Yeah. I, I can't, especially even, you know, your days on the road way back in the day, touring with these bands. I mean, you're doing God knows what. Okay, just set that aside. But when you couple it with, you know, one hour of sleep a night and excessive travel, I don't know how you're still standing or sitting in front of me right now. Well, that, well that's that's it. And <clears throat> I I realized later in life that I, I had been living my life as a series of deadlines. Yeah. Constant, heavy pressure deadlines for, exactly. for, you know, media deadlines, you know, and sometimes it can just be something like making sure you, you catch the last flight to New York, you know, not to mention the obvious deadlines that you would have with photo shoots and just setting things up and getting stuff shot. So it's a, it's a lot to, to think about. And you kind of have to just live your life from one to the next you know, what's in front of me right now? You know, I've got this piece of paper and this piece of paper and this piece of paper and, <laughs> you know, and I'll deal with that. So that's how you get through it. One, well, one thing at a time. I can imagine. I mean, and you, you look back. Well, you know what? I will say when you talk about what's in front of you right now, look what's in front of me right now. Your book. Well, of all the books, it's like, it's like Humphrey Bogart of all the gin joints in the world. You walked into mine. Of all the books well, that you happen to have. I, can you believe it? I know. That was just by chance. Did you read but, it? Have okay, you read so, it? Okay, so, yes, I've read it. And it's appropriately I'm proud, titled. I'm very, I'm very proud of the writing. You know? No, no, no. I, it's appropriately titled Exhilarated and Exhausted. And you signed it for me. Hey, now. All I your favorite bands are in this book. But don't forget to read the text. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, I'm nothing if I'm not uh, consistent. Exactly. Right. And that's that's what I did actually way back when when I got the book and, and uh, you know, you signed it, which was probably, I don't know, two, three years ago at the Morrison Hotel Gallery uh, I, that night. I, I saw I, you. you know what? We've done a lot of shows, a lot of exhibitions, and it's hard for me to delineate between uh, some of them because, you know, they're all fans are just so sweet to me and, and so giving and and uh, you know there are you guys are awesome i like you know a anyone who who knows what i do or sees a picture of mine on a wall and recognizes it as mine i consider a fan um and interestingly enough i never ever ever thought that my name would be known to anybody and I know now it's, it's it's known to a certain little sliver of the rock and roll world, which is fine with me. Um, but if you have a photo of mine, you put it on the wall and you derive pleasure from that, then that's that's how I get my cookies. You know, I don't mm -hmm. care if you know me, but if you know the picture of Jimmy Page swinging the Jack Daniels or Robert <laughs> Plant holding the dove, or et cetera, et cetera, then I know that I've, I've done a good job. That's, that's what I know. You've done a great job. And this book lays it out beautifully. I mean, the the rich context that you provide throughout it, uh, you know, your passion for photography in general is palpable when you read it. 
And the stories are amazing too. I mean, yeah, well, I tried to make it the story of my job of, of talking about my job, not saying here's a story behind that picture. Here's a story behind this picture because everyone does that. That's kind of boring, Mm -hmm. but I think it's more interesting uh, to describe, you know, events that led to a certain shoot or how Mm -hmm. you deal with a certain kind of personality or how you have to fully embrace the road crew. And I do mean fully embrace the road crew. I read that. Uh, you, you, you know, uh, yeah, you, you obviously read my little secrets for being, or uh, my guide to being on stage. Oh, I know get the rule fuck one out of the like, way. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, no, I, I made that my last one. And it said, when the crew's loading out, get out of their way because you don't want to be impaled by a forklift because you're trying to impress some girl from Memphis you'll never see again. And that is taken from real life, of course. <laughs> the whole book is real. Did not one thing in there is um, embellished or changed or, you know, you know, amped up or, or anything or steroided out. They're all, everything is exactly as it happens in my life. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, the way you wrote it, it was definitely true to form. And Cameron Crowe provides a wonderful forward and he yeah. really speaks to, you know, the, the, the magic, I guess, is the word for it that you you guys experienced at the time. And I know you're only a few years apart, so I can imagine that it was a little right. bit like frickin' frack walking in and having this like coming of age moment over and over again. Well, and that's that's really a good description of what it's been. It's probably one of the best descriptions I've heard, even from him. And, you know, he's got the hardware on his mantelpiece. He's got the Oscar. You know, I'm just a dilettante when it comes to writing, but, um, you know, we, it's, I'll tell you what, man, it's, it's weird to read people's books, watch their seventies movies, whatever, read their columns or whatever. And, and not think to myself, wait a second, you were barely there. I was in the eye of the fuck, you know, the hurricane. <laughs> so, but that being said, it amazes me how many people are a fan of Almost Famous, hmm. uh, which I've worked on, as you know, and um, and I lived and I lived it with Cameron in 1973. I mean, the movie takes place in 1973. Um, that's just my life. Um, I know that you 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 want to talk about L.A. and I can't talk about the '60s because I didn't move to L.A. until I was 19 in 1971. But I can most definitely talk about the '70s. And uh, if and I hope you don't mind me jumping off to that point. But no, no. If, I mean, I had a bunch of questions, and it, yeah, let's let's just go there. If I had if I had to <laughs> distill. My life in the 70s, not the 70s, but my life in the 70s, which, of course, means my job in the 70s, because they're, they're uh, connected somewhat. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would say to you one sentence, I essentially lived at the forum. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, when they, um, when they redid the forum about 10 years ago, and they converted it from, you know, basketball and hockey and concerts to just a concert venue. 
and Irving Azoff and Shelly Azoff, his wife, uh, were in charge of like remodeling the whole place. I wanted to make sure my photos got in there because that's a legacy issue. So there's a couple of hundred photographs all over the forum and 99 of them are mine. That's incredible. Yeah. Now they may, sorry, they may have switched some out, you know, in the, in the past year or two, but a huge portion of them are mine because, you know, I shot pretty much everything at the forum. You know, I remember a week in 1970, it must've been, it was either 72 or 73. I remember I was at the forum six nights that week because Zeppelin played two nights. I think Jethro Tull played two nights and um, someone else. It could have been Emerson Lake and Palmer or, you know, I mean, it could have been the almonds or whomever. Or Alice, uh, you know, all, I mean, all those big shows. All the um, big names of the 70s. Well, yeah, but this is, I mean, I can almost close my eyes and remember going through my date book. Hmm. You know, Thursday, Zeppelin, Long Beach. Friday, yes, Forum. You know, Monday, Greek Theater, blah, blah, blah. Captain and Tennille. <laughs> One of my little known secrets. Um, <laughs> but, uh there was a hell of a lot going on. So let's take a step back, though, because you're saying 1973. I, I, let's just call out how young you were. I mm. mean, you came to L.A. in 1971. First of all, uh, why did I, you come to L.A. from New York in 1971? Well, I, I had um, I'd been shooting since I was in high school. And when it came and, and photography was a super hobby, as was music at the time. And yeah, I was in a garage band and all that stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, photography was my was my was my true passion, along with music. And uh, I mean, my dad was into classical music and he was a big, 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 big deal Broadway stage manager. So I grew up around Broadway and uh, the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. And Gilbert and Sullivan and, and you know, I mean, my, my dad used to tell me the difference, how to tell the difference between uh, Haydn and Handel and, uh, you know, Tchaikovsky and Mozart. Wow. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you had a reverence for the stage. Yeah, definitely for the stage, for music and for the stage. And, you know, my mom and dad both love pop music. And, you know, I, I call the night the Beatles were on, were on Ed Sullivan, the night that John Lennon fired a nuclear laced, you know, spear into my cortex (laughs) that night. And I was never the same. I mean, I was one, I was one of those kids, that generation whose life was changed in one night, seriously. And I, I cannot discount the effect that that had on me. You know, I've, I've had some movie on this morning and it, it was some some romantic comedy. I don't know. Maybe it was on Lifetime. I saw the, the end of it. But the girl had a voiceover and she said, you know, taking a chance every day, you know, taking a left turn here or a right turn there is a chance to have something amazing happen in your life. And you never know it until it happens. Uh, and that's a lot of what, what I experienced time and time again. Um, but after after the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, I, you know, I became 
fully immersed in music and and I, and I started taking my camera to rock shows and I I through a series of strange events I won't go into it but I I met some big deal promoters and all of a sudden I had carte blanche into every concert I wanted to go to and met some people who were starting uh, uh, rock and roll magazines at the time, small mm. circulation publications, but publications nonetheless, and uh, showed my photos to people. And, and I'm still a junior and senior in high school when this is going on, you know, shooting at the Fillmore East, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when I, I graduated high school, close your ears, June of <laughs> 1970. And, um, um, and I was going to go to college and I applied to three different colleges. I was accepted to all three and they were NYU, Rochester Institute of Technology and Philadelphia College of Art. Hmm. Uh, I was going to go to Philadelphia College of Art and I, I woke up one day and walked into my mom and dad's bedroom and I said, uh, all right, it's Sunday. I'll pick up the dry cleaning. I'll get the locks and bagels. I'm not going to go to college. I'll pick up the Sunday Times. <laughs> and, you know, I just tried to sneak a knuffleball in there, which I failed miserably at doing. And they were oh, like, whoa, <laughs> back it up, sir. Back it up. But um, as it turned out, I didn't, I ended up not going to college. Um, and uh, I had an uncle who, kind of whispered in my mom's ear that that you know your son neil has some photographic talent for whatever reason he'd seen some of my photos and and uh a year later i had met a girl who lived in la hmm. i was still in new york and uh got on a plane october 15th 1971 and moved to la ostensibly uh, for love but you know what i would have I would have moved to LA anyway, because it was the center of everything that was the rock and roll business at the time, much more so than New York, New York was in those days, New York had a bit of, you know, New York was in the sixties and then, then, you know, then it became London and then LA. Mm -hmm. So, um, I just follow, I, I would have ended up here or in LA Eventually. within a year, within a year. Yeah. I'm sure of it. Because it was, you know, well, you know what? I, I have this little story I tell, which is that uh, I used to look at the cover of the Flying Burritos Brother, Gilded Palace of Sin, yep. which is uh, Graham and a couple of these over made up floozies, you know, who as, as a 17, 18 year old kid, I thought that they were the hottest things I've ever seen. And I thought, <laughs> and I was convinced that every girl in LA was going to look like girls on the Gilded Palace of Sin album cover. <laughs> so I moved out and they did. I then found out years <laughs> later, they were two hookers that Graham Parsons had hired for, for the photo shoot. <laughs> Swear to God. And you're saying that most of the girls in LA at that time looked like those hookers. <laughs> well, well I, I'm saying that I wasn't even adult enough to know the difference. I, any girl to me was a was a fantasy come true. I mean, you know, I was some little Jewish kid growing up in Forest Hills. I, you know, what the hell did I know? Although I did know from visiting my dad at the theater that it was it would be very intoxicating when he would take me into the basement to meet all the chorus girls. I mean, oh. for a 14 year old boy. That's pretty much all you can handle. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm sure that as a chorus girl, they were scantily clad. 
yeah. And but what I remember, it's funny what you remember is the aroma because it's mm. it's as they call it in theater grease paint makeup, but it's the perfume, the hairspray, the perfume. It's that it the aroma where the chorus where the chorus kids um, dress. It hangs there with its own personality and veneer. I will say. And have you smelled it? It's intoxicating. <laughs> well, no, it's, oh, yeah, of course. It's a, no, I know now what it was, but, it, you know, it was, you don't think about these things when you're, you know, when you're 14. All, all I can think about is boobs and fart jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I think that stops a, at 14, I, by the way. <laughs> I grew up a real boy, no, no doubt. So anyway, but I moved, I moved to LA in October 71. And um, because I had had a, a bit of experience in New York before I moved to L.A., I was kind of welcomed with, op by, with open arms by pretty much everyone in the business. And um, really, mm. yeah, I mean, my girlfriend was uh, was a work PR for a lot of big rock bands, and that certainly didn't hurt at all. But you know, you have to do the work. You know, yeah. you have to do the work, take pictures you know do the job so so that, you were kind so that of, brings me to 71 72 yeah so you kind of thrust into that music scene then upon coming here mm -hmm. okay so talk to me a little bit about los angeles at that time i can only imagine you know i i lived on the strip for many many years and i lived on the strip more for what it was for nostalgic purposes mm -hmm. than you know what it is right now um, but how was it coming from New York at 18, 19 years old, and then immediately jumping into the music scene in LA? Oh. Because that must have been euphoric and fantasy land. Well, it was fantasy land. It wasn't scary at all. Um, it was a, a living, breathing Disneyland. <laughs> um, you know, between the girls, the you know, of course, I had a girlfriend at the time. Of course, it didn't stop me. But, you know, the girls, the drugs, the music, the scene, the lifestyle, the, the laissez-faire attitude. Um, and uh, without any of the, the things that became uh, negatives for L.A., no pun intended, you know, after that, which would be the overcrowding, the traffic the um the, not so much the cost of living because it's still la is still a lot less than other places generally but um you know the the the, the more pressure the beat came you know it, it was everything you could ever want i'd say plus i i will say and i will always say this la has the best weather of any city on the face of the earth pretty much it does Except for maybe Rome, but you know, you can't, you cannot beat the weather in LA ever, mm -hmm. ever, ever. And, you know, and I'm sitting in the middle of the Sonoran desert here, which, you know, as you know, extends from LA over to Phoenix up to just past Las Vegas, Death Valley, that whole Southwestern United States uh, is the second hottest uh, uh, place on the face of the earth. It's the hottest area in the Western hemisphere. And it's second only to the sub-Saharan desert. So, you know, I'm 
I'm I'm looking out right now, and it, it I've it's probably a hundred twelve or something now. You voluntarily left, though. You moved into that. <laughs> yeah, well, it was time. It was time because L.A. is not what it used to be. And I never lived on the Sunset Strip. Uh, when I first moved to L.A., I lived in Beverly Hills. Me and my girlfriend lived in a little apartment in Beverly Hills. And uh, after I became single, I moved into another little apartment. Then I moved into... Uh, a little house in Laurel Canyon. I remember it was three hundred and fifteen dollars a month. Oh my gosh! Uh, on on uh, not lookout when when you go up Laurel Canyon, the first the first left is Kirkland. Mm. Kirkland. Uh, Kirkland's to the right, Kirkland. right, or the country. No, okay. Well, no, yeah, it's it's opposite the country store, right? When you're going up Laurel Canyon to the valley, it's to the left. Eighty four, sixty four and a half Kirkwood. I remember that, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then after that, Cameron and I were at the Beverly Hilton one day. I remember the day um, we were waiting. We were sitting outside the Beverly Hilton. And I, he had to interview or we had to. Oh, God, was it Burton Cummings? Someone like that. And um, Cameron had just broken up with his girlfriend. And I said, why don't we just get a place together? And he said, yeah. And we ended up getting a place where we're roommates for six years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that How was. How old uh, were you? Yeah. When was that? Well, uh, that was 77. So I would have been 25 and he was 20. He's five years younger than me. So, so we call that our Fry and Henley days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Oh, I want no, no. No, no, don't, don't gloss. Well, you know, that. we had, we had our <laughs> rock star girlfriends for a time. You know, he ended up marrying his. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's okay. But coming out here, I mean, you know, obviously you were a bit younger. He was a lot younger and I read an awesome story. Well, let's just go there with, mm -hmm. with these, these years. I read an mm -hmm. awesome story about how you would pick him up at the train station in downtown LA and then, or maybe I heard this. I, I don't know where I heard the story. No, but then I you would, would pick him up at the Greyhound bus. Oh, God. <laughs> he would take a Greyhound bus up from, from San, San Diego. Diego. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And he couldn't drive. You know, when I met him, he was, what, 15? Just turned 15, I think. And, um, oh, yeah, he couldn't even have his learner's permit. <laughs> <laughs> So I used to drive, I used to drive into, into downtown LA, pick him up at the Greyhound station. And then more often than not, we drive to the ride house or wherever other hotel we had to go to get the work done. And then he'd crash on my couch. Okay. But I, I like that little concise story there. What would happen when you would actually walk into the riot house back then? It was pretty Can much just like the scene in Almost Famous, to be honest. That just, scene is very lifelike. Uh, depending on what hour of the day, there would be more or less people hanging out there. But there would be there would be hangers on at all hours at the riot house. Certainly, if Zeppelin or uh, you know, big band 301B is is staying there, there's you know there's going to be fans. So. There was pretty much always either a band staying there or a manager of a band or 
you know, the side musicians, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and it wasn't a community scene. In the movie, it comes off a little bit as a community scene where everyone loves everyone. It was more everyone clawing at trying to get to, to someone's room. <laughs> you know, there, there used to be, used to walk into the riot house and they're in the middle. Now they got rid of this years ago. In fact, the, the last night we shot Almost Famous is the last night that they ever had the staircase in the middle of the lobby and it used to go up to the mezzanine. But if you went around that staircase to the side wall, there'd be a bank of payphones, And that's where, I mean, Cameron would be sitting on the payphone calling some publicist upstairs to say we're in the lobby or, you know, or we'd be waiting in the coffee shop there. The coffee shop was really real fucking scene there, by the way. Um, and uh, I don't remember any, I probably never ate anything there. <laughs> but, um, if you know what I mean, I lost do. my appetite. Um, but, um, you know, it was, yeah, it was more like a friendly competitive scene. Like, who are you here to see? Mm. Oh, really? Oh, uh, have you seen Bobby so-and-so, his right-hand guy? You know, blah, blah, blah. So it was more like that. You guys were getting a backstage pass, though, going into these hotel rooms. I'm sure you were pretty popular with the, the women that were waiting, the ladies in waiting. Mm, I have my <laughs> moments. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I don't... Well... <sighs> <I'm>, <laughs> <laughs> don't censor, I, it's no, fine. No, 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 no. Well, I, don't worry. Um, I know what's <laughs> right and what's not. You know, I don't really talk about that kind of stuff because well there's there's no discounting the fact that i was a, a whore but um <laughs> you know i remember some things more than others we'll say mm -hmm. and uh you know i mean i had some really great friends and girls i knew that you know were in the business or not in the business and you know blah 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 you know most of the groupies that i knew per se were not really girls you wanted to hang out with. Um, mm. They they weren't like the groupies almost famous. You know there was a touch of that, but uh, they they were they were a little bitchier and a little more competitive and a little sleazier than than you'd think. Um, again, I'm, a lot of them have been my friends, and uh, I don't want to say anything bad about any of my friends because I love no. my friends. Yeah, um, but. Uh, you know, I mean, I had plenty of girlfriends, you know, <laughs> my past haunts me. What can I say? Oh, gosh. Well, I think if you lived those years right, everybody's past haunts them. Yeah, well, bit. you know, they say if you remember the 70s, you weren't there, which I've always that's ridiculous. You know, um, I mean, I remember I, I can remember almost everything about every single photo shoot I've ever done. And maybe that's because I flick a different switch in my brain when I'm doing that. I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that, that the overriding thing that I will tell you is that, we, you know, we got a lot of work done. Mm -hmm. A lot of work done. I mean, I never put a, any photo shoot in jeopardy because of 
you know, uh, some girl or some situation, you know, I mean, work comes first. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Well, and I do want to talk a little bit about, I think, you know, when you think of the Riot House, you do think of Led Zeppelin. I want to talk about your years with Led Zeppelin as the official tour photographer, because I'm sure it was, to say it was a memorable experience, if you can't yeah, remember everything. No shortage of girls on that tour. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I could imagine. I mean, it was one thing that was like, you know, a plenty. I mean, if, you know, pretty much any fantasy that you ever had about as my mom used to my mom used to have an expression hot and cold running blondes <laughs> she told neil what are you doing oh enough mom i'm in chicago hot and cold running blondes right <laughs> yeah okay yeah you know whatever um she sounds supportive you know well, well she was a showbiz mom you know so don't forget you know yeah. they grew up on broadway so that's um, true uh you know, yes, I worked for Led Zeppelin. It was very stressful. Hmm. It's not all the, fun and games. No, I'm sure the touring and you even alluded to it. I mean, the lack of sleep and the constant go, go, go. But the pictures that you have taken from that band. I mean, I don't care if you aren't even a fan of Led Zeppelin. If you aren't a fan mm-hmm. of rock, you know that picture of Robert Plant holding that dove, mm-hmm. that dove pigeon. Well, whatever. yeah. Oh, it's had to be a pigeon. <laughs> As my, my ex-wife would say a fly, a rat with wings, a flying rat with wings. Isn't that what they say in New York? That's where well, I first heard the flying my rat. My ex, Kimberly, who I love and adore, maybe I'll tell her to listen to this. I, I remember we were in New York once. Well, and no, no, no. We were in Idlewild uh, up in the mountains above Palm Springs. We were in Idlewild before we were married. and. We're at a restaurant and uh, at an outdoor patio. It's up in the woods, you know, it's 7,000 feet up in the mountains. And some pigeons came and like flew right by her. And she nearly fucking fainted. <laughs> I mean, I, I think she got up and things went flying off the table. And, and I never knew she was scared of pigeons. Like, that's how I found out. So I said, honey, make sure you'd never come to New York with me. And of course she had come to New York with me and she's scared of pigeons, but she was a costume. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no, but Robert holding the pigeon, you know, I, I mean, it's a happy accident. You better have your camera loaded with film and you better have the right lens on and you better know what you're doing. You have to have it ready to go. So Part of being a photojournalist, and I'm pretty much a, a self-trained photojournalist, is being able to get those moments without even thinking about them. But how did that even happen? How did that even come about? Well, uh, very simply, um, they were playing an outdoor gig in San Francisco as an afternoon gig, and they had two cages of six white doves in each cage, one behind Jonesy's amps and one behind Jimmy's amps. And the idea was to release them at the end of Stairway to Heaven as an homage to San Francisco and peace and love and everything. And they did. At the end of Stairway, they open the cages and all 12 birds fly out. One of them does a slow burn over the audience and then flies right back towards the stage. And Robert stuck his hand out and the pigeon landed on his hand. It was a one in a million thing that happened. That's incredible. 
And if you know anything about Robert, he, he's a country boy and he grew up, he's a hippie that grew up on farms, you know. So it's nothing for him to, you know, pet a donkey or a sheep or milk a cow or have a pigeon land on your hand. And, you know, that's Robert. And um, it made for a very memorable photograph. And, you know, you don't even think about it when you're doing it. So that you, was you notice question, it later. Yeah. yeah. No, you notice it later. I mean, the night I shot picture Jimmy drinking the Jack Daniels, uh, he was sitting to my left. I was sitting here. There was someone to my right, one of the touring party. It was before the show in Indianapolis. And I remember I had a, I can remember this like it was yesterday, a loaded Nikon black and white film with a 24 mil on it in my lap, as I would normally have. And I was talking to someone here and I happened to move my head this way. And I, the corner of my eye, I see this bottle going up in the air. And I just picked up the, the camera and went, forgot about it you know and then it becomes like the the poster child drinking photo for 70s excess by any rock band i mean go figure you you, you don't know i mean the, the picture of freddie mercury you know leaning back with all of wembley stadium mm. in the background that was the third frame i shot of them on stage that day wow. um i used to have a, a picture editor uh, at people magazine my friend mc that uh I'd, I'd send in a take and mc would call me up and let me know what she thought of the take the next day always and if she liked it she'd always say take the re the rest take the rest of the day off you did a great job take the rest <laughs> of the day off and uh you know i could have taken the rest of the day off that day with queen because that's that's a strong image oh it's incredible you know. But and I, yeah, I've shot enough weak ones to know. Well, and I guess that's what I, yeah, my question is, as a photographer and having so many iconic images out there, how many were there at the time? I mean, maybe with Robert Plant holding that dove pigeon, you were thinking, yes, mm -hmm. okay, this is a great one. But how many other times did that actually happen? When you got, you know, the pictures back and you were like, this is a money shot. This is it. Well, you know what? That's a good question. Um, I actually have a very, very, very high batting average. I have to say, I'm I'm really good at what I do, and I'm not the greatest photographer who's ever lived. But in terms of live performance pictures, I'm I'm pretty certain I'm the best. And and I know, uh, you know, your view of a certain image will no pun intended will change over time. Sure. Whereas you know other uh, other frames will grow on me, but. You know, I can look at some of my proof sheets now and see exactly how I was shooting, what I was thinking, what, you know, the lenses I tend to use and things like that are just, that's something I was never taught. It's just something I picked up and figured out on my own, what my comfort zone is. Um, so I can look at stuff now that I shot 40 plus years ago and go, man, there's some really good stuff here. You know, um, I just, um, I've started to think about selling off some of my files uh, because, you know, I'm not getting any younger and I'm not married and I don't have kids and all. And I want to make sure that some, a lot of this stays in the right hands. So anyway, uh, I did a deal with Nancy Wilson where Nancy, um, uh, 
now owns all my heart pictures. And I was pulling all the stuff together for her. And Nance is a close friend of mine. I mean, she was essentially my sister-in-law for 20 years. Um, uh, and I was going through the heart stuff. And there's some really strong, I mean, I'm, I'm really good at what I do. And I'm good at what I've done, you know. So, uh, and that's, that's, that's a good feeling because I have to be the one, I have to be happy with my photos. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing if you guys are, but it's another thing if I am. So sure. anyway. Huh. Well, I can imagine that you've amassed quite a library that hasn't even seen the light of day. Mm-hmm. So are there some pictures? I'm sure there's some that you don't ever want to see the light of day. But <laughs> Yeah, there's some that never will that are in a dark corner. But um, one thing that um, I am doing now is we're getting ready me and my partner, Brad, are getting ready to launch um, a new gallery website. It's called the Outtake Gallery. And um, it's kind of, the idea behind it is kind of a little sandbox where me and a few photographer friends, photographer friends of mine, a uh, little sandbox where we can play. And we're picking out some things from the files that no one's ever seen and offering them for sale just for like a week here, a week there. Um, if you miss it, it's gone. You know, it's not going to be for everybody, but short editions, like editions of 10. Um, just because everyone wants to know what, what else is sitting in the files. And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a mountain. It's literally a mountain. So we figured this is sure. a good way to, to, to get some stuff to people. And, um, you know, I found a, a, a picture of Freddie that I love that no one's ever seen that I know is fucking deadly. A um, couple of Zeppelin photos, a couple of other people are in there. Uh, Michael Greco has given us some stuff, and Andy Kent, who used to be my partner, and uh, Joel Bernstein, dear mm. friend of mine, and uh, a couple of other people. So, um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. No but kidding. Anyway, I know I'm, I'm bopping around here a, a lot. Um, You're not. Subject-wise. Like, so, but anyway incredibly interesting and i guess you know one question i had for you is and i guess i'm backtracking a little bit now here too but when you get hired on to be the official photographer for a specific band or artist what type of direction do you get or does it vary i mean are there's parameters or they basically say just make the artist look good (laughs) well that's always a given i mean that's that's the unsaid rule you know make well make the artist look good if you know, if Stevie's not happy with her photos, it's not going to be a fun day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I mean, every, every band works differently. Every, every tour has a kind of a personality and a hierarchy and, and, you you know, you have to work within the, the, the band's personality and parameters. Um, what am I there for? Or, you know, that's my big question is always going to be, okay, you've hired me to, to be here. What's our end? Who's our end user? What's our end product? You know, what are we doing here? Are we documenting all this for posterity? Or are we looking for a live album from this, these two weeks? Or do you just need updated photos for, for various merch purposes? 
or a combination of all the above or a couple of big magazine articles. You know, I mean, that's as as a photojournalist, I always have to ask, what's my assignment? Mm-hmm. You know, What's and that will dictate and that will dictate how I conduct not how I conduct myself, but how I conduct the shooting portion of my time with you, <laughs> how I conduct <laughs> myself. Well, I might determine that, too. Um, so, you know, with Zeppelin, they, yeah, they they wanted to be able to approve shots that would go out to, to uh, magazines and see it's funny with Led Zeppelin. Um, in well in in 72 let me get my year straight in 72 the rolling stones did a big u.s tour they did a big one in 69 of course that was when they played altamont but they came back here in 72 and zeppelin was already huge and and the stones were getting a lot of big press they were getting major national press from time life look you remember those magazines, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the New York times, you know, et cetera, et cetera, y- you know, the New Yorker, I mean, the, this was what they were doing and, and Zeppelin were as big, if not bigger than the stones, but they were notoriously press unfriendly, press shy, we'll say. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it, they, I, I knew that they were, I had gotten wind that they were planning on hiring a tour photographer for 75. And I had already been on the road with them in 73 when I shot the picture of Robert um, because I had a retainer deal with Atlantic Records at the time. So any Atlantic Records act that appeared in, you know, wherever, Southern California, other places, I would have to go and shoot. Um, So I had a relationship with Zeppelin and, uh, my friend Danny Goldberg was their PR person. And I said to Danny, I said, if you guys go out in 75, you know, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring. And about a month later, he called me and said, if you still want the job, it's yours. And oh. the thing was that they decided that they were going to do, they were going to try and be more press friendly. And, uh, with that in mind, they were going to need a photographer on the road who could take some updated pictures and be able to service, you know, these journalists who were going to be mm-hmm. on the road with us. Mm-hmm. So that's ostensibly why I was hired. And, um, and I was the one that, you know, Peter Grant agreed to. Peter and, Grant. It, and it was Peter Grant, you know. How was it working with Peter Grant? I, well, I loved him. I, yeah. I mean, I, I loved him. And um, I think subconsciously he became a very important guy in my life, certainly my career. And I'm sure of that because I used to have recurring dreams about him for years. Huh. Um, and uh, nothing bad, but he would just be a presence in my dreams. So, uh, you know, it never... Looking back, it never hurts to have the words lead or Zeppelin on your resume. No. And, and I, I came to realize that because of my working for Zeppelin, I'd already been to the top of the mountain. So that's why all these other bands were coming to me 
you know, they all wanted Zeppelin's guy. It's not a bad thing to be, you know, don't get me wrong. But, um, eh, you know, if I hadn't, if I hadn't had that turn with them, you know, and I work with them until the end. Yeah. Um, if I hadn't had that turn with them, I, you know, who knows what would have happened. But you, you, again, you never know. Mm-mm. You wake up, you wake up one day and you could get bonked on the head or you could win the lottery. You never know. <laughs> so you don't, you know, I'm very like calm about all that stuff. So, well, you've, you've seen quite a bit and I have to bring up a story that I actually did read uh, mm-hmm. a Zeppelin story where <laughs> you once again were sleep deprived and you'd taken some Valium. I think after you, oh, you yeah. dropped the, <laughs> and you're yeah. on the starship. Yes. And I think Bonham decided to make him, make you the target of his drunk tirade. Oh yeah, okay. Oh, <laughs> I mean, uh, the thing about Bonzo was, I mean, we've all known this guy. Okay, we've all known the one guy at a party, either when you were in high school or when you were in college or whenever it was in your life, that would be absolutely 100% certain to get fucking sloshed out of his mind <laughs> and and would always create a problem so people would make sure that they like you never want to like catch the guy's glimpse you know <laughs> that kind of thing and now John Bonham could be very very sweet he was he was a country gentleman when he was sober he was anything but that when he was drunk and uh you know yeah when when he comes up to you and he says let's see your fucking knob (laughs) you you know especially after my third blue 10 milligram valium um (laughs) you know it's not it's not a fight i'm gonna win anyway but um (laughs) you know i mean he he could get blind drunk and blind drunk means you're blind (laughs) you know i had my room destroyed you know you don't give a a heavy drinker a telescopic blackjack and just let him loose in a hotel in cleveland (laughs) you know but that's kind of stuff that would happen (laughs) but i you know with zeppelin i spent a lot more time with robert and with jonesy Mm -hmm. than than with jimmy or bonzo i mean robert was just we all became a bit of a clique, mm-hmm. you know, me and Danny Marcus from Atlantic and Janine from Swan Song and Robert and a couple other people. And, you know, Dan, Danny Marcus, my, my dear friend, he was the uh, uh, artist relations for Atlantic, which was a stupid name title, a job title, which meant that you had the American Express card. And he <laughs> I remember in 77, he had this big plastic tube with a, a like a nozzle nipple on the end of it and and it was called the power hitter and you'd put a joint inside and you'd screw the cap on with the joint inside and then you'd press it like this and you'd get a humongous hit <laughs> there's no way to even describe it i mean it was like a 10 cent piece of plastic that someone wrote power hitter on and oh my God. My memories of most of 77 are just, (laughs) Jesus Christ, you know, um, 
you know, and there was the, the time we kidnapped Robert and took him to Detroit to go to a press party that we got the hotel wrong. Um, oh. Yeah, that that's something else. I don't talk about that much. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy shit happened, but I, I've been I've been interviewed a lot by s- s- journalists who say, you know, was it as wink, 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 crazy, wink, wink, wink with Zeppelin, as we've all heard, you know, and I always say if you're if you're you're using crazy as a euphemism for sex and drugs, I will tell you it was far crazier with REO Speedwagon <laughs> than it was with Led Zeppelin. And it's true. Far crazier with them or or me and the guys from Heart or Cheap Trick or Queen. <laughs> oh my god Whoops. i Get i her. can yeah. only i didn't i didn't imagine you were going to say ario speedwagon i just didn't No, well no one ever does <laughs> but it's true you, you know it's it's kind of like being a a big fish in a smaller pond um and as i said you know once once you've got the words lead or zeppelin on your resume it's not you know you're pretty much set but um Again, you have to do the work. You have to get the work done. You know, I mean, me on the road with Kansas, you know, I'm mortified at some of the shit that I did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm happy to tell you that uh, my dear friend, Phil Ehart, who's their drummer and now manages them, what's left of them, always had my back. Hmm. Always. I mean, I've, you know, had some laughs. What can I tell you? I'm sure there were some, yeah, some bands that were a lot more fun to travel with than others. Yeah, I mean, for me, musically, The Who was was the one. Hmm. Uh, not so much Zeppelin, but I'm a Who fanatic. And as I, since I was, I'm too old to have worked with the Beatles, or sorry, too young to have worked with the Beatles. <laughs> I was going to say, um, come on. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> um, but uh you know, the who were really in my wheelhouse and, you know, and the the time I spent with them on the road was 73, 74, 75. And, and they were so fucking good and, and so aggressive towards each other. And the shows were just magical, you know, magical. It was a good energy, so to speak. It was a horrible energy, but it was great for me. I mean, you know, I've, I might have written in my book. I don't know, but I know I've written this somewhere. It's, you'd never go into the Who's dressing room until such time as you're being invited to go in. Ever. Because you're taking your life in your hands. You could get a chair thrown at you, a guitar, a drumstick, or all three. Oh, so that's what you mean by aggressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, the drunker the, drunker the Who are on stage, the better the show is. Look, watch, watch the kids are all right with the filmed sequences of Bob O'Reilly and won't get fooled again. Pete is out of his mind. Now, Pete is my idol. Well, I've had two idols in my life, musical idols, Pete Townsend and John Lennon. And they mm-hmm. both occupy a different area of my head and my heart. Um, but, you know, Pete, well, people know, everyone knows he's my ultimate man crush. <laughs> he's my, mu- my musical god. He's my musical god. Him, him and John Lennon. Him and John Lennon. You got to shoot Pete a number of times, but did you get mm-hmm. to ever shoot Lennon? 
I never shot Lennon. Uh, I've shot the other three Beatles solo. I was one day driving Peter Frampton's Cadillac Seville on 57th Street, in New York, <laughs> and I looked on the on the sidewalk, and John and Yoko were walking oh. towards me, and I'm I'm driving a car, and I'm I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, it's John, yo, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Well, if you know anything about New York City traffic, you can't just drive around 57th <laughs> to 5th, take a right to 56th, to, you know, which I did. And of course, <laughs> I never saw them again. Oh. But um, that, yeah, I saw him walking on 57th Street. So that would have been about 78. 78. Oh. And then yeah. years later, you got to, and I love the traveling wheelberries, and you got to shoot them. Mm hmm. I have seen some of that, yeah. some of those photos, and it was right before Roy Orbison passed away, I think, too. Yeah, it was. Um, I got a, a call from um, my friend Mary Clouser, who worked for Tom Petty, and it was one afternoon. It was like one in the afternoon. She said, what are you doing? I said, you know, nothing. It's usual calls, you know, blah, blah, blah. It said... Tom's getting together with some of his friends to record some stuff. Can you run down to the studio and take some pictures? And I said, sure. You know, where is it? And she said, well, it's Dave Stewart's house in Encino. And, and she said, I got Tom on the other line. And then she said, hold on. And she came back online and said, Tom's going to call you with the, with directions. Hmm. And I said, okay. Five minutes later, Hey, how you doing? It's Tom. I said, hey, Tom. <laughs> you know, so where am I going? He said, well, you're going to Dave Stewart's house and it's, you go out the 101 and you get off at, uh, you get off at, um, you get off at, he said, talk to George. Who's George? This guy comes on with a distinct Liverpudlian accent. And I realize I'm talking to George Harrison. <laughs> Oh fuck! Now I've met him. I'd met him before, but you know, very briefly. And um, he told me where I was going, and I said, "Okay, well, me and an assistant will be out there in about an hour and a half." And we got out there. I walked in, and it was just me and my assistant, the five band members, and I think one roadie. Um, wow! And I walked in, and George comes to the front. And he takes me in the side room and he says, okay, so here's the deal. And I've now, I've now been told that it's, it's going to be Tom and Joanna, George and, and Bob, they, they were pretty sure Bob was going to be there and Jeff and Roy and Bob was there. So I walk in and, and George takes me in the side room and he goes, uh, okay, so Bob's here when Bob's ready to shoot. You check with me. I'll give you the. I'll give you the look. I'll give you the wink oh and the gosh. nod, and then we'll get it done. So Bob is cool. It's Come like, on, you know, there's a beetle walking on eggshell, and Tom walks in the room, gives me a hug because I knew Tom, you know, and he said, "Tom says, okay, so when Bob's ready. <laughs> we'll let you know, and so one of us will give you the the wink, and we, we don't want to piss off Bob." And it was all about Bob that day. Really? Yep. And, and how was he? He was Bob. <laughs> I mean, I've probably shot him 
I don't know, five, six times. I think he's never said more than three words to me. Really? I can't, you know, I can't remember. I, I know that, um, I remember one time this had to be about 70, 77, 78. Um, maybe it was 1980 around that time. Bob had some band. He was maybe going overseas with or something. And, um, and they needed some some group shots, and um, I happened to get the job, and I have to meet in the recording studio in West Hollywood, and uh, and Bob says, uh, "Would you go out into the alley and pick out a pick out an area for us to shoot some quick pictures?" Well, fair enough, you know. He's not the first person that said, "Let's get this done quick." So I look out in the alley, and I, you know, it's just a nothing alley in West Hollywood. And uh, there's a driveway, and it's got one of those convex mirrors in it, you know, fisheye mirror. Mm-hmm. And Bob comes out, and he says, let's, uh, let's shoot a picture of us in the fisheye mirror. And I looked at it, oh, God, I thought this is terrible. And I said, <laughs> yeah. I said, Bob, it's kind of been done a bunch of times already. You know, Birds album cover, Grateful Dead. I said, it's kind of been done a couple times already. And Bob says to me, well, we're just going to have to do it again. <laughs> That's probably the most Bob's ever talked to me. And then, of course, there's the story of my book about how Bob Dylan called me a leech, which is one of my favorite stories. I saw that when you actually were working some sort of press party. Yeah. Yeah, it was the last party I ever shot. You're a leech. You're a leech. <laughs> I, I agreed with him. You so, felt like paparazzi? I felt horribly. The paparazzi. Yes, the lowest form of life on the face of the earth. Lower than coronavirus. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yes, anyway, <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> well, let's take a minute and talk about, because this is one of my favorites of all time, Stevie. I know she's a friend of yours, and I have that picture mm-hmm. from that shoot in Venice, 1981, rooftop, black and white, mm-hmm. hanging in my living room. Mm-hmm. It is... One of the most beautiful photos. First of all, oh, I, I have you. quite a few photos in there. And every time anybody walks in, they immediately walk straight to the Stevie photo really? and they look at me. Uh-huh. And these are That's you know, people that might not be into rock, might not be into photography. They look at me and they go, What in the world is this? This is gorgeous. I was like, Oh, Neil Preston. <laughs> wow. Well that's I mean, that's an amazing compliment. Seriously. Well, and the photos, I, come I, on. I, you know, well, you know, look, I'm a fan. I, I'm a fan of some of certain photographers, and and if I switch this around and started looking at the stuff on the walls here, uh, there's two shots of mine out of two, four, six, eight on one wall. You know, I'm a fan of the guys. I'm a fan of um, the only stuff I have of mine up here is stuff that's signed to me. But that's a great compliment, you know, because that's what I strive to do. If if you can make a photograph that's memorable and people gravitate towards as a photographer, what else could you possibly want other than financial gain? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it makes you feel something. I mean, so the first album I ever bought. I was 15 years old. I'll never forget this. I was at a volleyball tournament in Davis, California, and we got a little bit of free time, and I found this vintage record store. 
So I walked mm-hmm. in, I've got my volleyball pads on and everything. And I see the rumors CD, you know, CDs back then, cause it was like mm-hmm. 94, 95. And I bought it. That was the, the first CD that I'd ever bought. And I remember continuously looking at Stevie on the front of that. And I was somewhat infatuated with her. And I think that that has been a love well, affair. Because she looks like you a little bit. <laughs> well, same eyes. That's the best con- the best compliment I've ever gotten. Thank you. Well, but you, I'm sure you've heard that before. I mean, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. Well, ever gotten I mean, that I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at how the light falls on your eyelids and stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I'm just I'm calling a spade a spade. You know. Well, I if I look it. like her, I'd say I look. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm holding on to that one because, you know, like I said, now it's however many years right. later we want to rumors specify. came out in 77. Rumors came out in 77. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's 95 for me, you know, right. and I'm looking at this and this is one of the first albums. I never really had, there was no affinity for the music that was happening at, during my time. Right. I liked it because it was what was on the radio, but I was constantly clicking the dial to KLOS. Mm-hmm. Or K Earth 101, you know? Mm-hmm. And Stevie, as I said, it has been a decades long one sided love affair that I have had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm surprised I don't have more pictures of her up. But the fact oh, that. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, there's. Well, show me. you know. Uh, God. <laughs> I, I don't even know what's here. Wilberries, um, Wilberries. Well, I don't. I thought I had one of her on top here, but oh. I guess it. I guess it's just these guys. Oh gosh, <laughs> they're second to none as well. Look at that picture of. Oh my god, look at Jimmy's face. I know. How do you not? Look, how do you not break your ankles? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he does kind of seem to be defying. Look, his his the normal that that foot is perpendicular. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know how he's standing. At- <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, oh, but uh, well, Steve and I have work. done a lot of shoots over the years, and um, maybe we'll do a book sometime. Who knows? I think you should. Because there's a lot of stuff we've shot that that no one's ever seen. I can imagine. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I can only imagine. But that's stuff that I would love to see. And and that shot uh, that you got there, the shots that you got, and even the story behind it. I mean, it was true Stevie Nicks, that eth- ethereal kind mm. of witchy feeling. It was a good hair day for her, by the way. <laughs> and I'm, you know, uh, keys to a lot of women that I've photographed all over the years is good hair day, good shoot day. Um, and great and- outfit day. Yeah, well, she put that on because she knew the wind would pick up the sleeves and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did the um, I did the cover for Trouble in Shangri-La for her. Mm-hmm. And the photograph that she ended up using for the cover is actually the first Polaroid that I shot the entire day. She really liked it. We, we kept it aside, and Karen, her assistant, scanned it. And, uh, you know, 90 rolls of film later something like that oh that's the covers the first polaroid frame that i shot that day oh that's incredible it just goes to show you never know you never you know don't. you don't nope. and how did you meet her um well i had been doing some some live stuff for them uh 
on the rumors tour, my dear friend, may she rest in peace, Judy Wong, used to work for them. And she kind of brought me in. And then um, after Tusk, I guess Stevie started working on Belladonna. Mm-hmm. And I did um, I did a people shoot uh, on Stevie solo. I had already I'd done one on I let's see, yeah, that was the first. I think I'd sh- I'd shot Bob Welch and Mick off stage, and I, I think I'd shot Christine. But um, yeah, I was assigned to People Magazine shoot, and um, the, all that stuff on the rooftop was in one day. One day in the 81, and she lived in a, in a condo in Venice that was a six-story building, and she had the penthouse. And uh, we shot a bunch of stuff there in the afternoon, you know, her and Sharon and, you know, and her in the vanity, you know, the famous pictures of her with the top hat and the mirror yep. and all that. That was all done that day, too. Oh, wow. Um, it, it was a productive day. Yeah, it was. And, um, <laughs> And then she was, uh, and then, uh, you know, I, but I, I felt like we didn't have the real good lead photo that we need to get for a story like that. So I said, you know, we still, still got some daylight out. Let's, let's try and shoot something, um, on the roof as -hmm. the sun's going down magic hour. And she said, okay. And she changed in order to come up with that dress. You know, I was already up there with, with a a light and an umbrella and everything. Um, and if 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 you look at the photo on your wall, there's a reason you can't see her ankles, because I had to have my assistant hold. He was laying on his stomach, holding one of her boots, because it was so windy up there, and she was right at the edge of the roof. A really bad gust of wind. She would have been Sally Field, the flying nun. Yeah, she's and like it, ninety pounds. It would have right. It would have. Would have ruined Time Life's uh, insurance department's day. <laughs> sure. So I told Joel, I said, you grab her ankle and you don't look up. Don't try to look up her skirt. Don't try to look at her anything. <laughs> you know, you, you don't even look at me. Just grab and look and don't and lock onto her boot so she can't so she can't get away. And, and that's didn't. what he did. And no. you got the shot. Yeah, and she sent me roses the next day. She oh. knew it was a good shoot. She sent me flowers the next day, which was really sweet. I mean, to get flowers from Stevie Nicks is—you did something right. Was was special, <laughs> yeah. and, and we've been friends ever since. Oh yeah, it, she just she seems like a doll. But I read this thing, this book, guys. Please get this book, please, 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 because I I do collect rock photography and I collect. I know. Go. Well, no one's going to see it, but I am going to put it on my, uh, I am going to put it on my Instagram. Okay, great. But I collect rock books and rock photography. This is one of the best books I have well, ever read. You. And I think, I think you're right. It's not because it's the story behind the photo. It's because it really is. It's the story of your life. You yeah, know, it's how, how do you, how do you have a career like this? And you know, maintain any sense of sanity or stability and get the job done. And look, everyone thinks it's the glamour job of the 20th, 21st century. And to me, it's anything but, I mean, there's great moments, but it's hard work. 
And look, a great music photograph can, I, I believe, can pick you up by the scruff of the neck and put you on that stage. 100%. Put you right in front of Jimmy Page as he's fucking sweating all over you and, mm-hmm. you know, sneezing all over you. But, um, uh, you know, I thought, well, that's that's an interesting take, you know. Um, and like I wrote in the book, it doesn't matter how how cute the girl is or the guy is or, you know, how well you know them when you bring them backstage. If they misbehave, it's on you. Yeah. And if, you know, if they vomit on the bass player's shoes, it's my problem. It's not their problem. It's my problem. It's, it's, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm accorded a certain amount of, um, not power, but, uh, you know, respectfully, I, I can accompany someone backstage or this or that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm allowed to be one of the family for a while here and there is, is what I mean. And, um, you know, it's a power to be used for good, not for right. evil. You know? Right. And they have to trust you. I mean, th- that trust is predi- predicated upon you getting that, that shot, you know? Yeah. And if you're screwing up in one way or another, no pun intended. Um, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you always have to deliver the goods without question. That's number one, because if you don't, the thing will be slipped under your door is not the room list for tomorrow's hotel. It's your one way ticket home. Oh, I can only imagine. Well, thank you so much, Neil, for coming on. You had such amazing stories and I loved hearing them. You're very welcome. Anytime. I'm going to ask you again. Hi out there. Okay. (laughs) Not a problem. All right. Thanks, Neil. All right, guys, thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Neil Preston. Do not forget to check out his book, Exhilarated and Exhausted. It has beautiful photos, great stories. You can find a link to the book in the show notes. Other than that, we'll see you at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.